0: and welcome. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers with DKB Med. You are in for a great presentation today with expert faculty who will do their best to make sense of what we know about preventing COVID-19. So for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, welcome. And if you've participated in some of our over 170 webcasts um, on this program, we definitely do welcome you back as well. Uh, We've been developing COVID education since March of 2020. So over two years later, we're definitely incredibly grateful to um, all the progress that we've made managing patients during this pandemic. So, okay, here are those great faculty I mentioned earlier. So uh, for those of you who have been with us since last year, you will likely recognize both of them, Um, but for our new learners, please do meet Dr. Allwater and Dr. Angaroni. Thank you both of you for taking uh, time out of your busy practices to be here today.
1: Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me welcome everyone.
2: Yeah, thanks Faith and welcome.
0: All right. Well, here are our faculty's disclosures. Uh, This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences, Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and the faculty presenters. As a note, this program has information that is up to date as of April 26 of 2022, so if you're watching this on demand on another day, uh, definitely do advise you to check out the NIH and IDSA guidelines for the most contemporary information on their recommendations. So the learning objectives today are to assess the impact of COVID-19 on vulnerable populations, including those from racial or ethnic minorities and those with comorbidities, uh, and also to evaluate best practices for treating ambulatory patients with COVID-19. I will hand this over to Dr. Allwater. Dr. Allwater, thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Faith, and. Uh, my portion of the program uh, will be uh, dedicated to giving some uh, current insights into where we are and and also some of the uh, prevention strategies, of course, but we won't be focusing on vaccines. <clears throat> I think so many of us hope that COVID-19 and the virus are far in our rear view mirror. And, There have been a dropping of mask mandates in many parts of the country. Uh, Public transit, for example, airplanes and airports, uh, although local um, regulation may still be in effect. Uh, But since the fall, Omicron has been a variant that has been uh, increasingly uh, prone to uh, transmission. And as an RNA virus, SARS-CoV-2 inherently has uh, less fidelity than DNA viruses. So more mutations, and there's still millions of mutations, not only in North America, but worldwide. So the chances for new mutations to develop are certainly opportune, which is why uh, I do not believe the WHO will end the pandemic until case numbers have remained substantially low. And certainly with China on the cusp of issues, I think this is not likely. Now, looking at the United States, what we can say is that uh, the Omicron uh, surge over December and January was so rapid up and down that the number of reported infections vastly underestimate uh, actual infections. It may be two to threefold more based on people that did home testing and was unreported or people that were undiagnosed. Uh, but importantly, if you look at the number of infections, proportionally, the number of hospitalizations and deaths were far lower than the earlier peaks that you may have seen with the Alpha variant and Delta variant earlier surges. So. Uh, more recently, despite the numbers becoming quite low, especially in early April, they are beginning to rise again. And in part, that's because the Omicron variant um, has had subvariants develop that are increasingly transmissible. And the Centers for Disease Control has been um, performing uh, genomic surveillance and incorporating results from sentinel centers across the country. And what's happened is that the orange uh, Delta variant was quickly replaced in December by the Omicron variant, which uh, was the lighter purple by a a dark purple. Uh, And then uh, uh, very quickly, the BA2 subvariant of Omicron has established itself. But wait, there's even a subvariant of the subvariant of uh, BA2, which is now increasing quite a bit. And for example, in New York state, now represents over 80% of uh, identified infections that are sequenced and even higher in central New York. And that's only a very limited perspective. So uh, again, given the extent of infections, more mutations will occur. So I think there may yet be surprises in store for us. And certainly with the dropping of mask mandates and people generally uh, 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 being less cautious, there'll likely be some increased numbers of infections. And that's been seen in the United Kingdom, Denmark, other countries where BA2 has been so common, but we haven't seen the commiserate increase in infections uh, causing hospitalizations. So the pathogenicity has uh, remained uh, relatively less. People that are being admitted, though, um, are those that remain with uh, uh, risk factors, especially immune suppression or um, uh, people that are unimmunized. Now, uh, risk factors for severe illness two years in, I think the, the lists have changed a bit over time based on levels of evidence. Uh, I think you're probably familiar with most conditions on this list. A few that I would probably point out that might be relevant uh, for the second part of this talk uh, with Dr. Angorone, uh, but uh, importantly, pregnancy remains a, a, a severe um, a possibility for illness, especially in the third trimester. And of course, immunization is encouraged. Immunodeficiencies and solid organ transplant seem particularly prone. Um, uh, potentially, uh, but there's um, maybe less evidence for the far right column there. Uh, but basically, uh, the other risk factor, of course, is age. And the age gradient is rather steep and, and does climb, certainly, as people head into their 50s, but gets very high by uh, uh, in the 70s and 80s. And in fact, a substantial number of deaths are in the advanced elderly. One other factor that's not technically medical, but may reflect uh, more uh, uh, social factors and economic factors and access to care is that certain racial and ethnic groups are much more prone, uh, at least throughout the whole pandemic, uh, to land in the hospital or unfortunately succumb compared to um, non-Hispanic people and uh, Asian uh uh, people as well Uh, so something to keep in mind and why often trying to facilitate care to those uh, groups uh, has been a priority in many cities as i've mentioned immunization uh, remains our best approach hands down uh, for preventing serious illness and what's changed is that early 95 percent Uh, stance that uh, the infection uh, first uh, seemed to respond to the promise of the vaccine back in uh, December of 20 has uh, uh, been blunted a bit, especially by Omicron. So the vaccine efficacy is not as strong, but still uh, a very effective vaccine. And I hope to show you why. Uh, Many of you have probably had trouble keeping up with vaccine recommendations. We still do not have it for children under five, and that data probably is forthcoming shortly, and I expect probably children under five will be able to get vaccine this summer. Uh, But uh, the couple things I would point out is because of heart inflammation, myocarditis, which seems particularly prone to um, adolescents and younger adults, especially men and boys, uh, is very much alleviated by spacing out the primary series instead of doing the second dose uh, uh, three to four weeks apart, extending it up to eight if people don't have severe risk factors, really reduces that risk of uh, myocardial inflammation. So that's one item I've recommended another key point that i think will happen over time is really uh after primary series uh the booster is incredibly important especially for omicron to help not only rise waning antibody titers but to better handle the virus uh that since has evolved uh and and, and really i would say the primary series really should be th- thought of as requiring three doses Uh, a vaccine, although that's not the way it's currently characterized. That's how I like to explain it to patients. You need to get three doses. Now there is a second booster, of course, um, and that's only really recommended uh, for people with risk factors who are adolescents uh, with Pfizer and for Moderna over 18 and anyone over 50 Uh, basically, or have uh, risk factors uh, such as immunosuppression uh, can also get that second booster, which is better characterized on this slide here. Uh, And the immunocompromised program uh, really essentially gives people an extra dose. Uh, So it's your normal schedule with the potential of two boosters, except here indeed the primary series is three doses. Uh, And one could argue it should be four doses for primary series, and then you need one booster. But be that as it may, uh, this is the schedule for that group. And even then, uh, certain patients, especially those with B-cell disorders or taking medications such as rituximab, are especially prone. Now, unfortunately, that initial booster um, uh, is not being used as much as it ought to be. And while many in the United States are uh, liable for a booster, and of course, Asian and white populations tend to be older than uh, uh, people of uh, Hispanic background and uh, black. But uh, unfortunately, what's happening in the United States uh, is that while we're a little over two thirds of people receiving the primary series, uh, uh, the people who have gotten at least the first booster dose is only at 30% and the second booster is less. And of course, there's controversy about the efficacy of the second boosters being truly necessary for many people, but I think this is being done in anticipation that there could be further mutations and enhanced immune responses may be helpful. That second booster may wish to uh, um, wonder about the timing and if there's a lot of virus in your community where it might benefit you. Um, However, uh, and we could talk more about that in the Q&A, but one of the uh, areas of the country that I uh, like to show and it's mainly because the public health officials in King County have done a very good job of collecting health data and immunization records and marrying them, is to give you a sense of how effective in real time uh, immunization is. And this just shows you data which has been toggled only to the Omicron variant. And uh, so that's really since December 1st onwards. And although the vaccine efficacy of people that are boosted is better than those that only get two doses, it um, where you really see a difference is in hospitalizations and deaths. Where if you're boosted, your chances of developing severe illness are far less than certainly someone that's unimmunized, and and also um, you know significantly maybe uh, uh, almost tenfold less a chance of dying uh, um, uh, than if you didn't get a booster, but we're only getting the initial series. I'll um, finish by saying that uh, for those that do have profound defects in their ability to respond to vaccine, uh, the uh, drug here, tixagivimab, silagivimab, uh, which uh, has been available again since uh, for months now is now uh, more available there was some difficulty getting uh, sites up and administering this but this combination uh, monoclonal antibody has had modified uh, FC receptor and has a very long half-life such that there's only two doses required um, I mean sorry I um, Uh, two doses per year, once every six months uh, to help offer protection. And this dose was uh, increased in February. So those that might have gotten the initial 150 dosing need a 150 catch-up. So this is approved for anyone over 12 and older, again, with those inabilities to respond to vaccine, or perhaps they're contraindicated to get the vaccine. Unfortunately, it's slow onset uh, because of the way uh, the drug uh, is distributed from the muscle into tissues means that it's not very effective for the first two weeks after administration. So it's not for post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, And the reason this still works is now that uh, the subvariant BA2 is still highly um, uh, prevalent, that the combination, which you see by the trade name in the first row, uh, when you break down the components, uh, and in the red box is silgivimab, which uh, is uh, fairly effective on its own compared to tixagivimab just below it, where it has uh, much more mixed data on impact. So this is something that I think might be increasingly relevant for immunosuppressed patients. So now I'm going to hand it over to Michael, uh, who will take you through some uh, treatments uh, that could be considered for your patients. Michael?
1: All right. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for that uh, overview of... Uh, the kind of where we're at with SARS-CoV-2, but then I think also uh, some of the uh, changes in the information that we've discovered over the past two years. I'm gonna focus on the outpatient uh, treatments for SARS-CoV-2, and this has really expanded, I think, especially over the past year. Um, I'll start uh, kind of reflecting on what Paul talked about with uh, the texagivimab, silgavimab, um, which is kind of the change in the monoclonal antibodies that we've seen over time. Um, and this table just kind of demonstrates the different monoclonals that we've had. We've had the bamlinivimab, acivimab, casuvirimab, and divamab, citrovimab, the texagivimab, silgavimab, and now the. Um, beptilovimab. Um, and we can see that for a lot of the early variants of SARS-CoV-2, these antibodies were very effective, but as we went into uh, beta, gamma, um, and then especially omicron, we've actually seen decreased activity of these antibodies. And um, during the omicron surge, uh, the Sotovimab, especially with the b 11 variant, um, was still very effective. Um, bepli- uh, the beptilovimab um, was just kind of coming on the scene around that time, but now we're in the era of the BA2 subvariant of Omicron, and there's been reduction in the activity of the sotrovimab, which has really had our focus with the monoclonals on the uh, uh, um, uh, uh antibody. And this is reflected, again, in this dashboard um, that Paul showed you for the Silgavimab, Texagivimab, where we can see kind of the wide range of activity for many of these monoclonal antibodies, but the beptilovimab really maintaining its activity against the BA2 variant of Omicron. And so as we look at the different therapies uh, for the outpatient, um, I think starting with what are the current recommendations, and then we'll talk about each one of these therapies, this is the most up-to-date NIH recommendations for uh, non-hospitalized individuals with mild to moderate uh, COVID-19 that are at high risk uh, for progression uh, to more severe disease. Um, The primary recommendations are treatment with two direct acting antiviral. So either uh, nermotelravir, ritonavir, that's given twice daily uh, for five days, that's initiated as soon as possible and within five days of symptom onset for individuals that are 12 years and over uh, and uh, 40 kilograms and over. Or Remdesivir, which is an IV infusion that's given once daily for three days. Again, starting as soon as possible and within seven days of symptom onset. And it is recommended for those that are 12 years and older um, and uh, 40 kilograms and older uh, as well. Um, There have been some changes with Remdesivir's recommendations um, in the broader scope with the FDA that I'll talk about uh, in a bit because it's now recommended um, for essentially all ages. Uh, uh, of children, so those that are 28 days and older, which we'll talk about in a bit. If an individual cannot uh, take or does not have access to uh, either of those two uh, medications, then H does recommend uh, either the monoclonal antibody. Uh, beptilovimab, that uh, is a one-time infusion, again, given within seven days of uh, symptom onset for those that are 12 and over, uh, or 40 kilograms and over, or molnupiravir, an oral medication that's taken twice daily for five days, uh, again, given within five days of symptom onset. This one's recommended for those that are 18 and over, so not for younger individuals. I think another important um, uh, recommendation by the NIH uh, is that dexamethasone or steroids are not uh, to be used for these individuals that are have mild to moderate COVID-19 unless it's being used for another indication. So they're not indicated to treat uh, outpatients uh, with COVID. So let's go into a little bit of the uh, evidence for these uh, therapies. So we'll start with the oral therapy, uh, nermotelravir, uh, ritonavir. This received EUA uh, from the FDA in December, 2021. Um, This is an oral direct acting uh, antiviral um, that is a protease inhibitor, and it's paired with ritonavir, uh, which is a potent inhibitor of the CYP3A uh, enzyme system, which allows the medication to stay in the uh, um, circulation and not get metabolized as readily. The data for this therapy comes from the uh, EPIC HR trial. Um, There was interim analysis that was reported uh, around the time of the EUA, and we now have the final uh, uh, analysis of the data of around 2,200 adults with at least one risk factor for severe disease. Um, uh, These individuals were randomized within five days of symptom onset, Um, and the study looked at hospitalization or death, um, and they actually looked um, at those that were given the therapy um, within three days of symptom onset and those within five days of symptom onset those that received therapy within three days of symptom onset, there was an 89% reduction uh, in the hospitalization or death. So 0.7% uh, for uh, the normal ritonavir versus 6.5% the placebo, no deaths in the treatment arm and nine in the placebo arm. When looking at uh, treatment that was given within five days of symptom onset, uh, the hospitalization uh, or death uh, was reduced by 88%. Uh, it was 0.8% in the treatment arm and 6.3% in the uh, placebo arm and no deaths in the treatment and 12 in the placebo. This study also looked at individuals that were 65 years and older. So kind of getting to that age a uh, uh, cut point where we start thinking about the higher risk for progression of disease. Um, and again, the treatment arm, there was a 1.1% uh, risk of hospitalization or death versus 16% in the placebo arm for a 94% reduction. Again, no deaths in the treatment arm and six in the placebo arm. And so showing that this agent uh, oral therapy is very effective, especially when given early after symptom onset. The biggest issue, as I mentioned, is the pairing of this uh, nermotauravir with ritonavir, which is a very potent um, uh, inhibitor of the CYP3A uh, enzymes, and there's a lot of drug interactions. And so all clinicians and prescribers should be aware of these drug interactions. Um, The UA is for individuals that are 12 years and uh, older at high risk for progression uh, to more severe COVID and given within five days of symptom onset. When we talk about the drug drug interactions, um, the list is fairly large. Um, you know, I treat uh, individuals with HIV, so I'm very comfortable with ritonavir, but even I don't remember all the drug interactions, and I always have to look this up, or I Ask my patients what um, other medications they may be taking for other conditions that they have, um, but the ritonavir can really elevate the concentrations of many of the agents that our patients are on chronically, um, and some of these um, medications can't be stopped or or Held, such as antiarrhythmics like amiodarone or uh, uh, fleconide, uh, some of the antipsychotic medications, the HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors like lovastatin and simvastatin, um, some sedative and hypnotic medications, anti-rejection medications. So uh, tacrolimus. Um, I manage a lot of individuals that are transplant recipients, and a lot on, are on tacrolimus, and there's a lot of issues with uh, the ritonavir and kind of boost the levels of the uh, tacrolimus. On the flip side, the nermotelravir uh, could have its concentration reduced by certain medications. Again, some of these medications our patients may be on chronically, like anticonvulsants such as uh, carbamazepine um, or antimycobacterials like rifampin, and even agents that may not be on their medication list, or we may not be asking our patients about, or they may not be uh, telling us about because they're over-the-counter products, such as herbal products like St. John's wort, which we know can affect the metabolism of different medications. So I think providers really need to be aware of uh, what medications our patients are on, especially when we're prescribing uh, a dual agent like the uh, nermotelravir ritonavir for uh, the mild to moderate uh, COVID-19. The next agent is remdesivir. So I think most of us are very familiar with remdesivir in the inpatient setting. We've been using this for uh, uh, starting at about three months uh, if not sooner into the pandemic. Um, But this uh, agent has recently been approved for the use in the outpatient setting. This comes uh, from the Pine Tree trial. This is a randomized trial of unvaccinated non-hospitalized individuals um, with mild to moderate COVID So there's around 560 individuals that had at least one risk factor for severe um, uh, disease uh, and symptom onset within seven days. Um, The mean age of these patients was about 50, uh, about 42% were Hispanic, about 62% had diabetes and about 56% had obesity. This is a three-day course of IV remdesivir. Uh, The trial was ended early because of some of the changes with different treatments that were, um, I think, coming to the forefront uh, with uh, SARS-CoV-2, especially the monoclonal antibodies um, and changing priorities. But uh, there was uh, some data for... Uh, uh, remdesivir in the outpatient setting. When looking at the outcomes of hospitalization or death, there was an 87% reduction in those that received the three-day course of remdesivir versus placebo. Um, and uh, for medical visits, so the attended medical visits, which included urgent care ER visits for uh, a, a COVID-related uh, issue, there was an 81% reduction um, uh, in uh, the remdesivir versus uh, Versus uh, placebo. And so this has prompted the FDA to approve uh, remdesivir for the outpatients, and it's approved uh, um, in younger individuals. So there was just a recent update uh, to the remdesivir approval uh, for uh, children um, at 28 days or older that are three kilograms or heavier uh, in weight. So this gives an option for, I think, younger children. And as Paul pointed out with the vaccine, I think that's something that we've been really looking for, our management and preventative strategies for uh, younger children. And so remdesivir is an agent that can be given to those younger children. Now we look at the monoclonal antibody, the beptilovimab. Um, This is a single uh, intravenous injection like many of the other monoclonal antibodies that we have. Um, The fortunate um, uh, activity of the beptilovimab is that it's active against the BA2 variant of Omicron. Um, And the approval for this agent was based off of a phase two uh, portion of Blaze IV, which was pre-Omicron in low and high risk outpatients. Um, And this was a trial that had placebo, beplatilovimab, and bamlanivimab, edisivimab, and beplatilovimab combined. When looking at the hospitalization or death, there was no comparison of this agent to placebo. Um, And when looking at the beplatilovimab on its own versus the combination, um, there was a 4% hospitalization death rate in the combination and a 3% in the beplatilovimab alone, small numbers. Hard to make a lot of distinctions between the groups, but it did demonstrate that the beptilobumab was effective um, uh, as treatment for individuals with mild to moderate uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and this uh, then prompted the EUA for high-risk adults uh, over the age of 12 to mo- with mild to moderate COVID-19 for whom alternative treatments are not available or appropriate. And then finally, uh, in our list of treatments, we have molnipiravir. Uh, This received EUA approval in December 2021. This was from the MOVE-OUT, our uh, randomized control trial uh, of around 1,400 individuals that were outpatients not vaccinated with at least one risk factor for severe disease, with the majority of those having obesity. This was a five-day course of treatment given within five days of symptom onset, uh, with the combined outcome of hospitalization or death. There was a 30% risk reduction uh, um, when looking at placebo versus molnipiravir. So 9.7% for the placebo and 6.8% for the molnipiravir. There was one death in the treatment group versus nine in the placebo. So there was a reduction uh, in uh, death uh, um, in molnipiravir versus placebo. Previous data have actually shown that molnupiravir can reduce viral load, uh, which may be important in helping truncate um, the uh, uh, length of symptoms, but also uh, help with preventing a uh, spread of infection. Um, There should be some caution uh, and potential fetal harm when using during pregnancy. Um, And so that is something that clinicians should be aware of. And the EUA is for high-risk adults 18 years and older with mild to moderate COVID-19 for whom alternative therapies are not available or appropriate. Um, a couple of add-ons to some of the treatments so um, that we've been looking at over the past few years with the treatments we had, uh, had available. Monoclonal antibodies, so this is going back to casiovirumab and Divimab, uh, which we are no longer using, but when this was uh, an active component of treatment, one of the um, uh, the big issues was the IV and having to set up centers to infuse this. Um, and so looking at, can we give this by subcutaneous injection? Um, and this data just points towards that subcutaneous injection uh, is comparable to IV administration in terms of the outcome of hospitalization or death, uh, or death with hospitalization. Numerically, there were more, um, Uh, hospitalizations in the subcutaneous arm versus the intravenous arm that kind of just skirted the um, uh, statistically significant with a P value of 0.05, but the confidence interval was right at one. And so clinically, is there a difference in this? And I think this offers potentially easier routes of administration for some of these agents. Also, when thinking about um, uh, these agents, there are uh, recommendations by the NIH to kind of tier individuals uh, when prioritizing, especially when these uh, agents may be scarce. So here in Illinois, we had uh, a lot of issues with getting the uh, preventative monoclonal antibody uh, texagivimab, uh, so um, and we used a lot of this tiering. And so tier one were those that were very immune suppressed. Um, uh, whether they were vaccinated or not, or unvaccinated individuals at high risk. Tier two were unvaccinated individuals that didn't fit in the tier one by age or additional risk factors. Tier three were vaccinated individuals um, at high risk um, uh, based on age uh, or uh, risk factors in age or vaccinated individuals that have not been boosted yet um, and there was concern that they may not have uh, an appropriate uh, immune response. And then tier four were vaccinated individuals um, that were over 65 or anyone under 65 with clinical factors. And then vaccinated individuals who had not been boosted, again, who were at high risk for severe disease. And so this kind of helped um, uh, create a path for how we should distribute uh, a scarce resource. Luckily, these resources uh, and agents are becoming more available. I think something else to think about is immune compromising conditions. Paul talked about it. I talked about it uh, with the recommendations. Um, This can be kind of a catch all from uh, a term that can include almost everyone. Uh, But I think we have to look at those individuals that are really at high risk for not responding to the vaccine or at high risk for that uh, moderate to severe uh, um, uh, COVID-19. A lot of this group are individuals individuals that have received B-cell depleting therapy like rituximab. um, And so we know they're going to have a blunted immune response. Those that are receiving uh, medications like Bruton tyrosine kinases or have had CAR T-cell therapy um, in the recent past, those who've had stem cell uh, transplants who have chronic graft-first host disease or on immune suppression uh, to prevent graft-first host disease, active chemotherapy for hematologic malignancies, lung transplant recipients, other solid organ transplant recipients uh, within one year, solid organ transplant recipients being treated for rejection with T-cell or B-cell depleting agents, uh, severe combined immune deficiency, and then individuals with untreated HIV who have T cells less than 50. Those are the ones we should really think of as being very immune compromised or having more severe immune compromised states. Um, I'll end with treatments um, with uh, convalescent plasma, kind of full circle um, uh, uh, in that I think we we were talking a lot about this early on in the uh, pandemic and then we kind of fade, uh, came out of favor, and now it's back again, in particular, high titer convalescent plasma. Um, This is based off of a recent study that looked at around 1,100 individuals um, that were given high titer, so 1 to 320 uh, titer or higher of the convalescent plasma uh, with the outcome of 28-day hospitalization. And those that were hospitalized, uh, did they require oxygen? And there's around a 54% reduction in hospitalization and a, a just over 50% reduction uh, in uh, needing of oxy- oxygen if you were hospitalized. And so this prompted an EUA in December of 2021 uh, for the use of high titer convalescent plasma uh, for individuals who are immune compromised um, who have SARS CoV 2. And so a therapy that we weren't using that much, now we're using again. So just to kind of go over, I think the four major therapies that are available for the outpatient setting for uh, SARS-CoV-2, we have nirmatrelvir ritonavir, a protease inhibitor that's oral, should be taken within five days of symptom onset and for five days, really be cognizant of that uh, drug, drug interaction. So know what medications your patient is on um, and be mindful of prescribing this uh, based on uh, uh, those interactions. which is a monoclonal antibody, uh, well-tolerated, and this is kind of a second-tier agent uh, for individuals that cannot receive one of the antivirals. There's remdesivir, which is a three-day IV infusion, which logistically may make it difficult to administer this uh, agent in the outpatient setting. And then molnipiravir, uh, again, another oral agent. There's no drug interactions, which makes this very attractive for individuals who are on medication, that interact with um, the normal nermotelrevir, ritonavir. Um, there is a decreased efficacy compared to the other treatments. But again, I think something that we should be uh, um, utilizing and aware of uh, its um, Uh, niche in treatment. And then a little bit on uh, how to locate these therapies. So, um, you know, there has been a lot of difficulty accessing or finding where uh, we can send our patients to get these therapies. Um, The uh, DHHS does have this COVID-19 therapeutics locator hub um, where you can put in a zip code or your area of practice, and you can see where there's, um, uh, different agents available, such as the nermotelivir, retonavir, which is the Paxlovid; Mulnipiravir, the beptilovimab, or the texagivimab, so gabamab, which is the abusheld, which is used as prevention. And so this might help you uh, to access these therapies uh, for your patients. So in summary, uh, uh, we know that there are certain risk factors associated with high risk for uh, severe COVID-19 hospitalization and death. And those include uh, Black, American Indian, Alaskan Native, and uh, Latinx. Uh, unequal health risks are the result of different conditions where people live, work, learn, gather, and age. So the social determinants of health. Monoclonal antibodies and antiviral medications are available for outpatients at high risk of severe disease or hospitalization. With current circulating variants of SARS-CoV-2, beptilovimab is the only monoclonal antibody authorized for use in patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. Remdesivir, molnopiravir, and nermotelravir ritonavir are available for high-risk outpatients. Um, The Pine Tree trial should benefit a reduced death, need for hospitalization, medical visit, if used early, in outpatients at high risk of progression to severe disease. And nermotelravir ritonavir has high potential for drug-drug interactions because of the ritonavir uh, being a strong inhibitor of the CYP3A uh, enzyme.
0: I didn't know if there were any points that uh, you wanted to go back on that uh, and talk about uh, before we did the post-test.
1: Sure. Yeah, I think that would be great. And, you know, there were a couple of questions, um, and Paul and I were discussing this before. And, Paul, I think it would be really great to get um, your perspective at Johns Hopkins with using some of these agents like uh, beptilovimab, uh, the uh, uh, preventative monoclonal antibodies, and remdesivir. How have you guys figured that out or, or have you with uh, administering those?
2: Yeah, so so Michael, uh, I would say there's a lot of uh, variation depending on centers on how this is handled. You pointed out the NIH recommendations. I, I would say we are using BEB to more frequently, especially in our immunosuppressed patients who might have drug, Uh, drug interactions preventing the use of Paxlovid, which would definitely be our go-to drug. And uh, that's first tier and including our state center Uh, which uh, is responsible for infusing monoclonal antibodies, he suggests Paxlovid for those people that are eligible to get drug into them uh, more quickly. Uh, The remdesivir data, I think we believe in, we just, uh, many centers have trouble with logistics and uh, uh, getting a three-day serial uh, infusion is just uh, difficult for patients that are infected as opposed to a one-time monoclonal antibody infusion. Um, and even though we don't have much clinical data, I think we generally feel the in vitro data and the mode of action hopefully means that its uh, clinical impact is similar to some of the early monoclonal antibodies. Uh, we do have uh certainly at the 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 um, uh, after those, uh, but it's right for some patients um, uh, for sure and um and uh you know definitely has a cleaner drug side effect profile so you know you do have to individualize it for the patient but you also have to know the capabilities but i would say paxlovid is quite underutilized so there's a fair amount of education out there and hopefully the recent biden uh administration's uh, program to try to get it into more pharmacies should help uh make it not so challenging to find where it is
1: yeah, no, and that's great to hear what other centers are doing, and I we've experienced the same thing here in Chicago at Northwestern um, with either the logistic challenges of the remdesivir, and then I think for me more importantly is the with the Paxlovid is the drug interactions, you know, we were were talking um, before we went on about, I see a lot of patients who are transplant recipients and we're both familiar with ritonavir with treating HIV. um, But that's the long-term, I think, the the effect of these short-term bursts of ritonavir, and we've had individuals on tacrolimus that have come back with very high levels of the tacrolimus in their serum, even after telling them to hold the tacrolimus while on uh, the Paxilvid and even having them hold it the day before we start um, and having those increases. And I know you talked about, you know, having some of those individuals at your center being hospitalized with um, the adverse effects from it. So I think it becomes really important to know about that, but not be afraid to prescribe it, to really, I think, talk to our patients um, uh, and and try to prescribe it when we can.
2: Yeah. And I'd also say talk to your pharmacist if you're not as familiar with the ritonavir component. Uh, You know, statins, it's not all statins, for example, it's Mm -hmm. only some. Mm -hmm. So uh, pravastatin, for example, is one we've often used in, for years in HIV care, because we know it doesn't, uh, it's not affected as much, atorvastatin and um, and rosuvastatin or others that are not as affected, certainly by a five-day course, you may not need to stop. So, mm-hmm. you know, everything uh, sort of depends a little bit, but I think there's rightful hesitancy if people aren't familiar with it, but I think people do have to become comfortable enough so that it's a routine consideration.
1: Yeah. And I think just like at the beginning of the pandemic and as we got some of these therapeutics, um, you know, we weren't all that comfortable with some of them. And we were like, well, should I do this or should I do that? And I think it's a learning curve. And as we all get familiar with these, I think hopefully we'll we'll be able to kind of catch up and, and be comfortable using these outpatient agents.
0: Perfect. Well, right. thank you so much, doctors. Didn't mean to um, put you on the spot there, but I would be remiss if I uh, didn't get that uh, conversation out to our learners there. Uh, As a reminder, as we move into our Q&A, please click that Q&A button to the left of your console. We will try to get to as many as time allows, um, but to honor everybody's time, uh, if there are some that we don't get to, uh, stay tuned for some of our upcoming webinars and we might just answer them there. So I'm going to start with our first learner question here. Uh, do patients on weekly doses of methotrexate and every eight-week infusions of infliximab for treatment of uh, psoriatic arthritis fall into the category of immunocompromised patients? Doctor, Dr. doctor, Alder, go ahead.
2: Yeah, um, well, I'll take a stab at this one. Uh, so um, this has come up before, and, um, and my sort of view is that TNF inhibitors generally have not Uh, predisposed terribly to more severe um, COVID disease, but more importantly means that you haven't had much impact on uh, response to immunization. And the same goes for methotrexate, although I think it depends a little bit on the dosing schedule and so on. So uh, on the other hand, one could argue that it's in your rights to give uh, something like tixagivimab, silagivimab. But in our prioritization scheme, when the drug was a little less available, uh, those patients fell far lower on the tiered schedule. Uh, Michael, thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I agree with that, uh, Paul. Um, I think our uh, individuals on the TNF inhibitors or agents like methotrexate were in our three, four tier. So they were a little bit lower down so we could really focus on the more severely immune compromised. So I would put the, an individual like this and that kind of mild to moderate immune suppression. Uh, and I think a lot of that would probably be the methotrexate, like how high of a dose or, or if it's more than once weekly. Right.
0: Wonderful. Um, Dr. Angaroni, do the outpatient treatments apply to those at high risk who have been vaccinated and boosted?
1: Yes, so the treatments are for everyone that is at high risk. And so I don't think we should be moving to the unvaccinated, the vaccinated or prioritizing in that way. I think we should just look at individuals who are at high risk for um, uh, severe complicated COVID um, that have mild to moderate disease and just give them these treatments. I don't think the vaccination um, should really play a role in that. Paul, I don't know what your thoughts are on
2: that, Yeah, no, I think that's that's right. Uh, What we don't know and maybe what prompted the question is really how well, you know, how much of a differential there is in someone that's immunized. Um, You know, you already saw the hospitalization and death rates are far lower, but they're not nil. Uh, so I, I think especially for people at high risk and especially advanced ages, I would be very inclined not to just rely on the vaccine in people with uh, those groups.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, I think this will be our final question today as we round this out. Uh, this learner asks, what are the restrictions for Paxlovid, only immunocompromised or also those over 65 with a history of cancer or cardiac issues.
1: And so I I think I'll take a stab at this first. I think uh, the uh, Paxlovid is really recommended for anyone who's at high risk for progression to severe disease. And so um, this would be immune compromised over 65 with conditions that uh, uh, fit into the high risk category over 75. Um, I think you could place even those under 65 that have more of those severe immunosuppressive conditions or uncontrolled diabetes or have HIV and they're not under control yet. So they still are viremic, even though their CD4 count may be a little bit higher than the 50. I would include all of those. I would say those that don't fall into those high risk categories as of right now. we're not focusing on that treatment. That may change over time. I think we're really targeting those individuals that we know are more likely to end up in the hospital and end up with a more severe uh, uh, illness.
0: okay well excellent thank you again to uh both of you for your time and taking time out of your busy practices to be here uh for our audience if you'd like to claim credit please do click that claim credit button it will appear when the webcast ends as well Uh, please be on the lookout for our 30-day survey you'll get that in your email Uh, as always please do respond this will help us develop further education. To our podcast listeners, please rate and review. It only takes a few seconds and really helps us to uh, expand our reach. Uh, For those of us joining on YouTube, please be sure to take the post-test in the description to claim CME credit. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel. You'll never miss another one of our future videos. So uh, thank you and we'll see you again soon. Dr. Allwater, Dr. Angaroni, thanks again.
2: Thanks so much for joining.
0: Yep,
1: thank you.